If you would take your Bibles with me this morning and return to Romans chapter 5. Allow me to begin our time by reading the first five verses of this great text. Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult in the hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Let's pray together as we begin. Father, we come to Your Word with our hearts desire to hear from You. We know without the Spirit we have no ability to understand what You would even tell us. Your Word clearly tells us that the things of the Spirit are not discerned by the heart that does not know You, by the natural man. And so we as Your people, those who believe upon Jesus Christ by faith, we ask You to open our minds, open our understanding, cause us to to hear what you say as we approach your word, and help us, Lord, to apply it to our lives for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. How long will I be able to remain a Christian? Ironically, that was the title of a recent news article on Fox News. It was an article asking a very serious question about the future of Christianity and the future of actual Christian living in the United States of America today. This is what some of that article said. It said this, quote, With each passing month, that shocking question becomes more relevant and even more disturbing. To say that Christians and Christianity are under a withering and brutal attack in certain areas of the world would be an understatement. In various parts of the Middle East, there is a genocidal cleansing of Christians being carried out. Women, men, and their young children are being slaughtered because of their faith, and world leaders and most of the media turn their backs in bored indifference. Here in the United States, Christians and Christianity are mocked, belittled, smeared, and attacked by some on a daily basis. And this is a bigoted practice that is not only increasing exponentially, but is being encouraged and sanctioned by many. It went on to say, too many of those who worship at the altar of political correctness, have deemed that Christianity should no longer be respected. They, that is those that are at that altar, assail it on a regular basis in a coordinated campaign to weaken the faith and its base. The prevailing view is that Christianity is aligned with conservatives, or at least the views of the elected president, and therefore must be diminished and made suspect. One magazine in New York, the New Yorker magazine, just described a Chick-fil-A restaurant in New York City as pervasive Christian traditionalism and a, quote, creepy infiltration of New York City, unquote. So now, Christianity is an infiltration to some in our world. The article said in college... They now teach about the evils of quote-unquote Christian privilege. On Broadway and in theaters around the world, mocking Christians has become a massively profitable money-making venture. In movies and television and online, Christians are portrayed in the most dishonest, prejudiced, and insulting ways. 
Across the country, Christian colleges are under constant assault from, quote, social justice warriors seeking to strip their accreditation and put them out of business. Christian groups on campus are at times being persecuted, their offices and handouts vandalized, with members even being physically assaulted. In a nation that is still majority Christians, the writer of this article says, I read that line and thought, that's debatable. But even if it was, in a nation that claims at least that it's Christian, those who follow the faith have been litigated, browbeaten into being fearful to utter the very words Merry Christmas or to display a nativity scene celebrating the one and only reason there is a Christmas day. The author goes on to ask, you want to stay true to your Christian faith in the most innocuous and giving of ways? To do so is becoming more perilous by the minute when you stop to just ponder a sampling of the negative consequences. Let me give some of those. I thought it was interesting, so I'll share them with you. For example, a high school football coach is fired for taking a knee in prayer. A teacher is fired for giving a Bible to a student who requested it. A Marine is cursed cursed at and then court-martialed for not removing a Bible verse from her computer. Another Bible verse posted by sailors in a military hospital is labeled extremism. If you are a practicing Christian in the United States and open about it, you, your congregation, and your organization will become a target of some sort. It's only a matter of time. Then he went on to say, ironically, in some very real and ominous ways, it is as if we are being transported back to ancient Rome. We will soon have to meet with fellow Christians in secret. He asked that question. Will we have to whisper our beliefs from the shadows? Will those Christians with traditional beliefs lose their jobs and livelihoods if discovered? Will those Christian children eventually be coerced to renounce or even deny their faith in order to get a job or provide for their families? And the article goes on and on. That was by the way, written by a man named Douglas McKinnon who happened to be a former White House and Pentagon official. This is the country we live in. Now, while the world may be surprised at what is happening to Christianity in our country, while those who look outside and go, boy, that shouldn't be happening, and some of them in a in a kind way towards Christians, might try to say that shouldn't happen. You and I as Christians ought not be surprised. Why? Because Jesus has told us that this is the norm. This is the way it is going to be. This is how you and I are going to face our Christian life. That has been the way it is throughout all of history, and it will continue to be that way until Christ returns. Jesus said to his disciples in John 16, verse 33, In this world you will have tribulation. In fact, the Apostle Paul even goes as far as to tell Timothy in his final letter to him in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that it's not only going to be bad, but it's going to get worse. And it won't simply be from the outside where attacks are coming, but it will also be from the inside. So while we may not desire tribulation, and while we may not care to have it in our lives with all of its potential dangers and troubles that come with it, here in the United States we have yet to face anything like that that is happening around the globe to Christians in other parts of the world. Tribulation, however, is built in the very fabric of the sinful heart. And yet, what man means for evil, God intends for good in the lives of you and I as Christians. 
This is what we are finding out in our study of Romans chapter 5. There is a beauty that is revealed through the doctrine of justification. There is a real, a real sense in which the tapestry of the threads are sewn together and on the back side it looks very ugly, but on the front side it is a beautiful picture. The doctrine of justification through which God uses each aspect within our minds and thereby our lives to show us just how secure we are as Christians. Paul has already shown us that having been justified in Christ through faith, we have peace with God. He says that in verse 1. We are no longer enemies of God. Now we are sons of God. We are no longer under wrath. Now we are in the realm of peace. We have peace with God. Paul says that in almost every letter he writes, even to the Galatians where he doesn't really go off with, I thank God for all the good things you are doing. Even at the beginning, as we heard this morning, he says, grace to you and peace. We have peace with God. That ought to cause us to have real joy in the reality of our justification. We have been transferred from the domain of darkness into the domain of His dear Son, and we are no longer enemies. We are at peace with God. That is our new condition. And then Paul said, we have a new position. We stand in grace. Through whom also, he says, verse 2, we have obtained our introduction by faith, into this grace in which we stand. This is our new position. We are no longer just one who are enemies of God under the wrath of God. Now we are in this realm in which we cannot get outside of the favor of God. We stand in grace. And of course we learned about the glorification to come and we exult in the hope in hope of the glory of God. We have an exuberant joy in the guaranteed glorification of not only ourselves, but of seeing God in His full glory, seeing Jesus Christ in His full glory, seeing sin completely eradicated from our lives, seeing the world and everyone who has ever been created bowing the knee and saying with their voices, Jesus Christ is Lord, even though they're not saved. And then Paul says, and not only those things, but, Verse 3, we are to be exuberantly joyful in the guarantee and the reality of tribulations because we are Christians. I said last week, all right, Paul, you went from three great, wonderful things to this one we don't like. Paul pulls no punches. Paul says it like it is. Paul Paul preaches to us the heart of God because this is reality. He is holding nothing of the truth back concerning the reality that with true salvation comes true security in Christ. Inherent within faith in Jesus Christ, this justification we have before God, this innocence that we are have been declared to us by God, Inherent within that is a security, and the tribulations are one of the ways that God uses to ensure that we understand just how secure we are. God allows tribulations because we are Christians, and He allows them to us who are His children so that we fully understand just how secure we are in our hope. Jesus Christ is our hope of glory, the Scriptures tell us. So how does this truth work itself out in our lives? How does tribulations, how are they used in that way to to bolster, to, to, to strengthen, to show us just how secure we are. How do tribulations, because we are living as Christians in the world, how do they help us with our assurance? Let's 
be reminded of what Paul says here in verses 3 to 5. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance proven character and proven character hope and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. In verses 3 to 5, the bottom line is this. We can have an exuberant joy in the heated pressures. That's what tribulation is, thlipsis in the original language. It's pressure. It's that 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 squeezing of you. And when the squeezing happens, what comes out of us proves exactly who we are. We can rejoice because these things strengthen our eternal hope. When what? When we apply our faith in them. It's going to strengthen our hope when we apply faith in them. In other words, when we walk by faith in the tribulation. Let me say it a different way so that we're not confused. We are enabled by God. We are enabled to boast about our tribulations. Or to glory in them. That's the idea. We are able to glory in our tribulations as a result of walking in them according to our faith. According to our trust in God and His character. We are enabled to glory in our tribulations as a result of walking in them according to our trust in God and His character. According to our faith. So how does this work out practically in our lives? Notice what Paul says here, first of all. And not only this, verse 3, but we also exult in our tribulations knowing. Knowing. Just stop right there. How do we boast in our tribulations? How do we glory in our tribulations We do that by first exercising what we know. What we know. Do you see that? Right? Not only this, we exult in our tribulations knowing. In other words, we can glory in our tribulations because we know something. And it is this knowledge, it is this application of this knowledge that takes us out of the place where we are discouraged because of our tribulation, and it moves us into the place where we can rejoice because of them. Tribulations are hard, no doubt. No one would rightly dispute that tribulations are hard. In fact, the first place we tend to go in our mind when they come is to either ask God why or we ask God to remove it, right? Why is this happening? Please take it away. Maybe that's just me that does that. But that's where my flesh goes. Lord, why can you please just remove it? Get it out of here. I don't want it. It's unpleasant. But sooner or later, in the process, when we begin to engage what we know about God, what we know in our understanding, and what we know is God's purposes, and what His process for our own growth in Christlikeness is, when we begin to process that, what our knowledge does, or Maybe we can even say it like this. What our faith does with that knowledge is it enables us to follow in the process of God. God's process. It enables us to follow. That knowledge engaged by faith allows us to follow God as He works to strengthen our assurance by means of the tribulation. So what's the process? How does that work? 
How does it work itself out in our life? Paul lays it out for us here in verses 3 to 5. Right? We, have, we have tribulations that happen. We, we are to boast in, we're to glory in our tribulations, and we do that with this knowledge, this, this understanding, this knowing of God, and we exercise faith in that knowledge. How does that process then begin to work itself out so that we have a stronger uh, assurance when we come out of it? Notice what Paul tells us. Notice what he says. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about what? Perseverance. Perseverance. Some of your translations might read the word patience. Patience. The idea there that Paul is talking about, the idea he's trying to get across to to us who are justified, to you who have been justified, to you who believe in Jesus Christ, is this idea of continuance, continuance in the faith, not turning back, not giving up, not being crushed. Not being totally destroyed in it. Paul said we're crushed but not destroyed. We're perplexed, but we don't give up. That's the idea. It's just continuous. And it's the not quitting, if you will. And so Paul says when tribulations come, because you're a Christian and you're living like a Christian, which you ought to be if you profess to know Jesus Christ, you are enabled by God to rejoice or to glory in those tribulations. Why? Because you know both intellectually and experientially. You know intellectually about the things of God, and this isn't the first time that God's ever led a tribulation in your life. So you know intellectually and you know experientially that this tribulation is God's process for you to produce in you perseverance, continuance, the ability to not quit. Now here's the irony that I often find happening in my own heart when this is taking place, when God's using me. This is the irony. You say, what is it? Good question. Here we go. I say, Lord, please make me a patient person. I'm not patient with people. Please help me be patient. And we go to the Lord and we pray and we pray with with honesty and we we, we want God to grant our prayers and we say, God, you you hear prayers. I, I know you hear prayers. You tell us to come to you. Uh, you tell us to come, Abba, Father, and we come and we pray and we say, I, I need to be patient. And instead of miraculously just making us patient people. Guess what God does? He brings a tribulation. He lets a difficulty happen. And my first response is, I didn't ask for a tribulation. You're not answering my prayers. You're not hearing me. I didn't ask for that. God, please take this away. This isn't what I asked for. Uh, Maybe it was lost in translation somewhere. And yet, it doesn't go away. The tribulation is still there. And I'm like Paul. I persist in asking. And God's Word says, just like He said to Paul, no, I'm not taking it away. My what? Grace is sufficient for you. And, oh, by the way, little child of mine, I'm granting you your prayer request. Because the tribulation will produce in you the patience you asked for and the patience you need so desperately. In other words, tribulation is a divine, God-given process by which He is working out in each one of us His certain result of perseverance. That's what God is doing. So Paul says you can glory in your tribulation because you know that God is working it as patience in your life, perseverance in your life. 
You say, well, what, what does all that mean? What is patience here? What is, I mean, certainly it, it's got to be something different than what I think patience is because that's not how I like it. Patience here in the mind of Paul is the ability to continue on enduring in the faith, continue on trusting God even though you are in a tribulation. That's what he means. Perseverance. Continue on. You don't just drop down and go, that's it, I'm done with God. I'm done with this Christian thing. I think in our Sunday school class this morning, we were reminded by Neil of the fact that Paul went through all kinds of struggles and tribulations in being a Christian. He was laying under a pile of rocks a couple times, in the ocean a few times, beaten almost to the point of death several times. Had he not believed the gospel he was perpetuating, he would have ran the first time. God had granted Paul perseverance through those things. And so Paul is saying to each one of us here who have been justified, so you, your steadfastness in a tribulation, that ought to cause you to rejoice concerning your assurance. That ought to cause you to rejoice and and, and be thankful because you certainly wouldn't persevere. You certainly wouldn't continue on if it were not for God working in your life to cause that all to happen and for your faith to grow. And so you know that God only does that for His children and that ought to cause your assurance to be sound. We are preserving in the tribulation. Remember what Peter and John said in Acts chapter 5, verse 41. I, I, I told us this last week. It says they had been they had been before the people and the people didn't like it. They hauled them off to prison and they finally released them. And it says, so they went on their way from the presence of the council, the Judaizers, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for His name. They went away from that moment of tribulation, from that, that hard time, from that pressure that God had allowed for them to just be preaching the gospel and they were facing the council because of it and saying, you, you cannot do that anymore. And they were flogged and let go. They went away from that boasting, glorying in the tribulation, knowing that they had been counted by God worthy of the name of God. So it's the same with us. Tribulations produce in us a steadfastness in our faith, and that strengthens our assurance. It's like this. Each and every time a tribulation is part of our life, we quickly realize our need for God, don't we? I mean, when God brings tribulation in your life, you know you need God. Even if we ask God for patience in our Christian life, and we go, okay, God answers prayer, and God brings tribulation, we go back to God. And we say, God, what are you doing? I mean, we know our need for God and our need to remain close to Him in the process, and we trust Him in it and through it. That's what happens. That's what God does. And so we pray differently. We pray differently in a tribulation than we pray when... Our life is just a life of ease. Tribulations help us not think so highly of ourselves. We begin to understand, as Paul did, that when we are weak, we are strong. We lean on God's strength, not our own. And so the beauty is that it doesn't stop there. I mean, that would be great if there was just a period after perseverance and you move down to verse 6. But that's not what Paul says. Paul says it doesn't stop there. Not only are you gaining perseverance, not only are you being strengthened in your continuance, notice what he says. Not only is it perseverance that brings about perseverance, but perseverance proven character. 
Not only is the tribulation bringing about something in your life, but that result is bringing about a secondary result in your life which ought to bolster your assurance. Remember I said that tribulations are the litmus test for the genuineness of the profession of your faith? You say, I'm a Christian. God brings tribulation in your life if you're a true Christian. And this is the litmus test for it. This is the reason I say that. The word proven is that idea here. It is that testing of the genuineness of something. That's the idea. That's the word Paul uses. It's that that word for smelting minerals. You you put it in a hot fire. The dross rises to the top. They scrape off the dross. It fires it again. More dross comes up. They scrape off the dross. And what comes out is the pure mineral. That's the idea. It's proving. It's that idea of proving, testing it, bringing, see if it's real. See if there's any cracks in there where it's going to break. And it's tribulation and it's the test that tribulations test the provenness of our claims and our character. That's why he says, that's why it's translated here by the translator as proven character, dokimos. It's, it's, the, it's a one word in the original language, but, but it's, it's that provenness of who you are. And so what Paul is telling us is that perseverance leads to a proof that we are truly what we have professed to be. In other words, perseverance in tribulation, perseverance, continuance in tribulation proves the genuineness of our faith. We've been able to pass the test. That's the idea. Why? Because the faith given to us by God to trust Christ is is being strengthened. Remember last Lord's Day, I took us to the parable of the sower in Matthew chapter 13. The seed that was sown on the rocky ground sprang up quickly, didn't it? sprang up really quickly. It was received with joy. It was received very quickly. It was received with a lot of gladness. It was received with a lot of exuberance as if it had found something to finally fix in life. It it appeared to be true in the heart or in the soil that was the rocky soil until what? Until persecution of the world came along. What happened? It didn't last. It didn't continue. It didn't go on. It cut and ran. It was over, done. It had no perseverance under the tribulation and therefore showed itself not to be genuine. Don't get in your mind that in Matthew chapter 13, that person there or that uh, example, that metaphor Jesus uses is a saved person just because there was some kind of greenery that showed up for a moment. They're not saved. They ran. They left the faith. Paul told the Corinthian Christians that very same thing. At least those who profess to know Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13, he said, test yourself. See if you're in the faith. See if you're in the faith. In other words, tribulations are the proving of your faith. They're the proving of your faith. They're the, the, the fire that God allows to heat up on your faith that, that purifies it, that, pure, that, that causes it to be forged a strong reality. This is exactly how James speaks of it in James chapter 1. Remember what James says, beginning of verse 2? Consider it, and that is before it comes, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. That sentence doesn't stop there. There's not a period there after that word trials in James chapter 1. He says, consider it all joy, my brother, when you face these multicolored, multifaceted trials. How? Knowing, there's that word again, knowing what? Knowing that the testing of your faith, this proving process of tribulation, produces endurance. The word knowing there is the same word that Paul uses right here in verse 3. 
James is saying, listen, you know that the testing of your faith works in you a continuance, a perseverance, and that perseverance shows your provenness, your proven character as a true Christian. Again, here's how Peter expresses that truth. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6 through 9. So you have James saying it, you got Paul saying it, now here's Peter. Here's how Peter says it. 1 Peter chapter 1. Verse beginning, verse 6. In this, in what? In the salvation that you have, that's verses 1 to 5 of that chapter, in this blessed be God who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, in this salvation that you have, all that God has given you, Paul says it this way, you have been justified, right? All that's what Peter's talking about. What we have in justification, what we have through the innocence that we've been declared and given by God, all that we have, Peter says, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Why, Peter? So that, that's the proof, here it is, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, it, it proves you're saved. Your faith is secure. Your, your assurance is bolstered up. And, and when Christ comes, there's no need for you to be ashamed of that. Right? At the revelation of Jesus Christ, it's going to result in your praise, your glory, honor. And though you don't see Him, and you've never seen Him, you love Him. And though you don't even see Him now, but you believe in Him, that's faith, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible, full of glory, attaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. You see, Peter's saying the same thing. Your assurance is solidified because you're in Jesus Christ and that is God's plan and this tribulation just shows all that. It comes and is solidified through all. So this perseverance gives us a test and it reveals in us or it reveals in that that testing, in that tribulation, in that trial whether we are truly the children of God or just simply false professors. Here's the reality. If you're a professing Christian, words, if you're a professing Christian and you never have tribulation in your life, I'm not talking about whether your car got a flat on the way home. I'm not talking about whether the stove didn't start or some little first world inconvenience. I'm talking about persecution because you're living as a Christian. If you've never had tribulation because you're living as a Christian, you are either not living as you ought to live in the world and you need to repent of that and walk by faith, or you're not saved at all. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones put it this way, quote, There is something seriously wrong with the man who is praised by everybody. Woe unto you when all men speak well of you, unquote. We can rejoice in tribulations because we know intellectually and spiritually or experientially that they bring about in us perseverance. And that perseverance proves our genuineness of faith. And that provenness of faith, contrary to crushing our hope, that's what we think, tribulations, that just causes my hope to be smashed on the rocks of doubt. Contrary to that, contrary to crushing our hope, it actually strengthens it. Notice what Paul says. And proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint. Paul introduces once again this idea of hope. We've heard it already back in verse uh, 2. In we, This grace in which we stand and we exalt in hope of the glory of God. Here Paul introduces hope once again. He begins with hope and he ends with hope. It's like bookends on this grand doctrine. 
it again is this idea, as I said before, hope. This, hope is the idea of absolute certainty. We have an absolute certainty of the glory of God, and Paul is returning to this reality of the absolute certainty. So the same idea that Paul has already said in verse 2, we exult in the certainty of glory, so we exult in certainty here. Here's what's happened. Paul says, because of having been justified, we can and we should rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And we say to ourselves, okay, all right, all right, I get that. All right, Paul, I understand that. I, 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 I'm, I'm learning to embrace that. I have not just peace with God, you say, but I also stand in grace. But you also say, I have a certain hope. All that sounds great, Paul, right? I stand in grace. I have peace with God. I have a certain hope of the glory of God. Life is good. And then what happens? Bam! Tribulation. We're going along in the truth of justification in our minds. We're living our little Christian lives. We're revealing the joy that's in us from all of that. And wham, God hits us with a tribulation. Some piece of this lost world that hates Jesus Christ, some piece of this lost world that hates you because you're identified with Jesus Christ, comes around and assaults your life. Now the pressure's on. You're like a sponge that looks like there's nothing in it, and God squeezes it. The tribulation that you think would drive you away from hope actually is doing the very opposite. It actually is bringing you back to hope and showing it to be even more certain than you thought it was before. In other words, having gone through the tribulation, you are now more sure that you are a child of God than you were before the tribulation. In other words, the trial of the tribulation has actually strengthened your assurance that comes when you understand justification. That's what Paul is saying. He said, proven character produces in you a stronger hope than you had before. It's a hope that doesn't disappoint. You see that? You believe you're justified because you believe in Jesus Christ? God says, having been justified, it's a done deal. You didn't get yourself into it. God drew you there. God granted you the faith to believe upon Jesus Christ. You have been once and for all, with eternal consequences justified by faith, you have peace with God. That cannot be changed because you are in Jesus Christ, our Lord. You are intimately attached in a unity with Christ. And through Christ, you have obtained this introduction into this grace in which you stand. You have access to God through Jesus Christ, the only way to have access to God. And you exult in the certainty of the glory of God to come. You exult in the reality that one day you will be completely out of this world perfect. And not only that, now when those trials come, when the tribulations come, when, when just you live your Christian life and the world hates you because they hate Christ and you're going along and you think things are well and you want things well and yet God brings tribulation, you know that that tribulation is producing in you a continuance in the faith that you have proclaimed. And that continuance in faith is showing you that you really are saved. It's a provenness of your faith. And that faith bolsters your hope even more. You have a more sure hope. You don't need to be disappointed about that. The word disappoint there is a word. It really carries the idea of being ashamed. You have a hope in Jesus Christ, a hope in justification, a hope in God and all that comes with Jesus Christ and justification. All of that, you have a hope in that that you don't have to be ashamed of. The world says you're a whack job for believing all that. I'm not ashamed of that. Because the hope that we have, we do not need to be ashamed of. It's the only solid hope available. It doesn't matter what happens. Life will be full of tribulations. 
But if we have that hope, you'll never be disappointed. And you never need to feel that you have somehow been let down by God. In other words, the certainty that you have in Christ does not cause you to be ashamed. People say, I don't believe in Jesus Christ. You know, I'm just not sure about that. I'm not going to be ashamed of that. I'm not going to be ashamed of the hope I have in Jesus Christ. I know this is the securest place I could ever be. I'm going, I may be going through some circumstance. God may be allowing tough times in my life, but it's still all good with me and God. Somebody may say, well, God would never do that. A loving God doesn't do that kind of stuff. Oh, really? A loving God allows tribulation in His children's life. Why? Because He wants you to understand how secure you are. Here's how Job said it. Though He slay me, I will what? Trust Him. I don't know about you, but I've never had the problems Job had in one day. It wasn't like Job went outside and realized his the grease on the axle of his chariot wasn't really right and his wheels were going to fall off. No, he lost his entire family, his entire wealth, everything he had, he lost one day. Though he slay me, I will trust him. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said it this way. King Nebuchadnezzar, our God will deliver us from your hand. But even if he doesn't deliver us, we will not bow to you. They were saying the same thing Job said. Though you slay us, though God allow us to be slain, we will trust him. It is more secure there than in the security of your foolish worldly system. Why? Why doesn't our hope disappoint? Why doesn't our hope disappoint? This hope that we have. Why is it not a disappointment? Notice verse 6. Or notice verse 5. Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through or by means of the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So here's the reason we need not be disappointed in the hope that we have, which is produced and bolstered by tribulations that come, because we know God loves us. This is an act of God's love. This is the the reality of the sovereign care and divine loving hand of a Father who wants you to know just how secure you are. You say, how do I know that? Because you've been given the Holy Spirit. If you know Jesus Christ by faith, you have the Holy Spirit. Jesus promised it. God has given it. We have the Holy Spirit. In other words, the reason that we know of the love of God is because of the indwelling Holy Spirit. That's why we know of the love of God. The Holy Spirit is the one who empowers us to persevere. The only reason you persevere in the trial is because the Holy Spirit's there. Yeah, we look and we think it's us. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm getting through this by faith and trusting God. Yeah, but it's the Holy Spirit who's empowering you the whole way. And you know in that perseverance that the love of God has been poured out in your heart because you have the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that's making you. It's all about that. Know it. And that changes how we live. When the Holy Spirit is in you, That happens at conversion. The Holy Spirit comes and dwells in you. When He's in you, you understand that even in tough times, God still loves you. God still loves you. He's given you His Spirit. If the love of God is permeating our heart, then there can be no doubt about it. And it is the Holy Spirit that makes us certain of the love of God to us in Christ. His Spirit confirms with our spirit that we are the children of God, it says. 
So it's all linked. God the Father is here. Jesus the Son is here. God the Holy Spirit is all. They're all here. All three three of the Trinity are here. What a wonderful truth. What joy we ought to have. What exuberant rejoicing. What exuberant boasting in. Glorying in. That God would make such a way to help us to be fully and completely assured that we are His children. God says, you need to trust me. We say, I trust you. I'm, I, I have an assurance in this. He said, well, I'm going to ensure that you are sure. I'm going to solidify your assurance. He could have just said, I'm God. Listen up. Don't worry about it. That's it. And that's good enough. That's who God is. He's not going to change. And yet God, by His grace and mercy and love, sends tribulations, allows them in our life, just like those who hated Christ. We, we are hated by those who hate Christ, and those things solidify the reality of our assurance in Jesus Christ. He didn't have to do that. But He desires for us to have joy, His joy. Even if that means, like some of the martyrs, we are tied to a stake and the world is lighting the match. You know what held martyrs to the stake when they were being burned and their families are watching them and they're saying, you need to recant and we'll stop this. You know what held them to the stake? That very hope. That very hope. Energized by the Holy Spirit because they understood the love of God had been poured out upon them. So rest assured, dear Christian, rest assured, you are safe in the love of God. You are safe in the love of God. That almost gets us to the fifth one. Almost. We'll get to that next time. Let's pray together. Lord, once again, you have, I trust, fed our souls. You have cared for our hope. You have strengthened it. And you will continue to do so into the future until we see you face to face. And so we can even say here this morning, thank you for tribulation. Thank you for pouring into our hearts your love through the ministry of God the Spirit. Lord, help us to reflect on these truths as we live for you and as we endure standing in your grace all for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.